You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com. Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and each week I have the opportunity to interview guests on the that are experts on the topic of my column. This week, my column is titled, Another Climate Alarmist Predictions Don't Match Real World Data. And we're seeing this more and more, that these climate predictions that the alarmists are making have not held up. We've got now a year's worth of predictions that we can go back and look at. But this week, I was particularly um, inspired, I guess I should say, by a news report that came out about Lake Mead. I've been over Lake Mead many times, and uh, my mother lived in Las Vegas for a lot of years, and so that, that particular body of water, when I saw the news headlines, caught my attention. And the news headlines are that Lake Mead is now at historic lows. And the story went on to say that Brad Udall, who is a senior climate researcher at the, uh, he, he is a senior water and climate research scientist at Colorado State University. Now, he's also brother to former Colorado Senator Mark Udall and cousin to New Mexico Senator Tom Udall. So I'm well aware of the name Udall, and it caught my attention. So when he came out and he said, this problem is not going to go away, and it is likely to get worse, perhaps far worse, as climate change unfolds, and then said, unprecedented high temperatures in the basin are causing the flow of the river to decline. Well, you know, I address climate change regularly, and uh, this caught my attention. But it particularly caught my attention. I was drawn to it because of an email string of conversation between our first guest, whose work this entire column is based on, and a group of um, people who are interested in climate who are most of them based in Las Cruces, New Mexico. And I'm on this email list, and they, they email frequently, and a lot of times I just let the emails go by because I, it's not something that I'm particularly focused on. But when I saw the name Udall in there and Lake Mead in there, I must say it did catch my attention. So our first guest today is Mike Wallace. Mike Wallace is a hydrologist. He's from New Mexico. He's working in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and he's going to tell us about it. But he's also working on getting his Ph.D. at the University of New Mexico. And in his studies, he kind of made some discoveries that we're going to talk about, about stream flows, and particularly in the Colorado River Basin. That, and those are what feed Lake Mead. So, the comment that caught my attention that Mike Wallace made is, Brad Udall and I can't both be right. So I reached out to Mike Wallace. Now, I featured some of Mike Wallace's work back in December 2014, his work on ocean acidification, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today as well. But that, that column that I wrote uh, featuring Mike's work got 
a huge amount of attention. And in fact, this column today uh, that we're talking about has also gotten a huge amount of attention. So we've obviously uh, hit on something that people are interested in. So Mike, I appreciate your uh, allowing me to feature your work once again, and thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Sure, thanks for having me, Marita. So tell me, you know, I mentioned that uh, back a year and a half ago, I focused on your work on ocean acidification. Can you, for our listeners, briefly explain, because that's not where we want to spend all our time today, and you're going to be with me for two segments, so we have time to develop the topic fully, but can you explain for our listeners kind of in a simple way what your ocean acidification discovery uh, was and what kind of response you you received at the time? Yeah, sure. Um, I usually tell people to give a little background on that was uh, <clears throat> the initial impetus for me wanting to work on a Ph.D. because I've been working for 30 years as a hydrologist. I was interested in ice ages, and I was interested in maybe the possibility that's the movement of the solar system in and out of giant clouds of interstellar dust might explain ice ages. There's a lot of reasons to think that might be the case. But um, once I got into a real PhD program at University of New Mexico, uh, my academic advisor, my PhD advisor, Dr. Harjit Ahluwalia, he's a solar physicist, and he urged me to focus my time on more near-term climate and hydroclimatology, because as a solar researcher, he and many others have been studying the potential effects of the sun on climate, and uh, the sun has uh, is about a 400-year-long record of uh, sunspot number uh, recordings, and that's a pretty good record to go by to look at uh, to see if there are um, connections, and there have always been some intriguing connections. You can go to the Farmer's Almanac, and their system is supposedly based on sunspot numbers, which is interesting. But in any case, uh, yeah, it is, isn't it? So, yeah, I didn't think they, I realized that. Yeah, they keep their uh, secret locked up in a, a cabin somewhere in New England. That's what they say. <laughs> and, I think they do some, they look at other things than just sunspot numbers. And, um, but in any case, um, I was uh, uh, directed to look at more contemporary issues. And, uh, you know, I was a hydrologist, and I'm pretty familiar with a lot of aspects of hydroclimatology. But I started digging more deeply about two and a half, three years ago into the ocean patterns, these El Nino, specific decadal oscillation, which is the PDO, which is a, a temperature index that was developed for the northern half of the Pacific Ocean, the AMO, which is the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation. A lot of researchers have been putting these indexes together for decades and seeing some correlations in different areas of the world. So. As I was looking into that information and building up databases and looking at correlations, you know, my focus was on stream flows in the western U.S. Uh, because there's good records. Some of the records go back over 100 years daily. And, um, you know, it's important. So uh, as I started going through both, 
uh, ocean indexes and stream flow records, it occurred to me that um, ocean pH needed to be looked at too. I started to look at it because um, pH in the ocean uh, is related to temperature. It's related to the partial pressure of CO2 in the atmosphere and many other things, including circulation. So as I became more and more aware of the pH literature, things didn't seem to be adding up to me. So I started looking more deeply into it, and I found a uh, one time series. I looked through a lot of articles, and I could only find one time series that seemed to detail the progression of ocean pH from the beginning of the 20th century roughly until now. Now, can I, can, I interrupt and ask, can I interrupt and ask you, and you can tell me no if I'm getting ahead of myself. You can, you can say to me, I'll get to that. But what, what is the uh, climate alarmist uh, headline on ocean pH or on acidification? What, what's the current alarmist headline? Well, there's, I think there's new headlines every day now, if you look. It's <laughs> kind of amazing. But um, the, main, the narrative is that the oceans are acidifying and that fossil fuel emissions are the only cause that it can be attributed to. But I found those claims pretty hard to believe, even three years and ago. And what, what is the problem, supposedly, for us non-science types, what is the problem with the oceans getting more acidic, if they are correct? I mean, if, if these alarmist claims are correct, what, is, what does that mean for, for the oceans and for humanity? Well, in generally, the message that the scientists who say that, uh, the message I think they're trying to make people believe is that all marine life is in danger. Then if okay. you dig a little deeper, they'll say, well, it's, um, it's, cal it's, uh, it's uh, shellfish, seashells and things like that, that, um, that need um, calcite to make their shells, or aragonite, which is a, a variation of calcite. So what they're trying to suggest is that shellfish, which are uh, you know, part of the food chain, that affect all things all the way up to giant whales and marine animals, that um, shellfish is endangered, coral is endangered, and everything else is endangered because the, uh, the sea life won't be able to form their shells anymore because the acid uh, content of the oceans will dissolve the shells. That's just... Okay, the all right. So we're down to about two more minutes, and then we're, we have to take a break. And uh, so... I want to address the new discovery in our second segment. So what did you discover? So you got about two minutes to tell us what discovered you discovered on this story. The scientists that made the uh, time series that seemed to indicate that the, uh, ocean, was, the, the ocean was getting more acidic with every year, um, it turned out that 80 years of the data had been left out of their narrative. And I wanted to get that data, and I demanded the data, and I had to file a FOIA. Even after all that, they never gave me the data, and I had to find it on my own. Once I found the actual data, it looks like um, ocean pH seems to be oscillating, just like these other natural variables like the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, and they're correlated very highly. 
and that finally makes sense. So uh, everything else, all their claims are just based on omitting the data and replacing it with a model without disclosing it to anybody, not even Congress. So the model's a key thing here, that they're, again, yep. because that's kind of the theme of what I wrote um, in my column, based on your information, that um, they're, they're using modeling, and they've, in the, this case, omitted the real-world data. So in about one minute, exactly. tell me what's happened to this whole ocean acidification story since we broke your discovery. Nothing. Nothing's happened. Nothing. But I'm you got a lot of attention for it. You got a lot of comments, but nothing on the climate alarmist side has changed. No, nothing's changed there. In fact, it's gone into overdrive. And so I guess the one bright spot is uh, the International Journal of Marine Sciences is uh, doing some special features now to really hopefully challenge the current narrative. So really? That's a journal, yeah. And uh, they've been getting hundreds of submissions of papers, and they've already put out one special issue on uh, ocean acidification. I just submitted a little article myself. Uh, well, good. Well, I hope they publish issue. it. I hope so, too. Because <laughs> I know my readers uh, really uh, respond to your, to your information. So we're going to take a break. We're talking with Mike Wallace, discussing my column this week, another climate alarmist predictions don't match real-world data. Stay with us on America's Voice for Energy, and we'll be right back. Buzz off with Lawyer Liz. Join me each week, Wednesdays at 2 o'clock, as we talk drones, Internet of Things, and technology. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of Energy Makes America Great and the companion educational organization, the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy. Each week I have an opportunity to write a column on some energy-themed but news-inspired topic. So today we're talking with Mike Wallace regarding his discoveries that impact the climate change narrative. In our first segment, we were talking about his work on ocean acidification, and now we're going to jump to a new uh, observation that he has made as a part of his work uh, for his Ph.D. at the University of New Mexico. So, Mike, I want you to, if we can, uh, to jump now to this 
this new discovery that you've made, and let me just ask, because I know your ocean acidification discovery was not really what you were looking at, but was kind of a side discovery. Is this a stream flow that we're going to talk about? Was this part of your primary work, or was this kind of a side discovery as well? Well, it was serendipitous because um, as a hydrologist, I've always been getting out there, giving papers, talking about various regional, local hydrology issues. And um, I gave a paper uh, after I discovered the ocean acidification, uh, the actual time series of ocean pH, I started to recognize that it seemed to have some correlation to stream flow. And that appeared to be because it was correlated to the PDO somewhat, and the PDO, which is the specific ocean index, is highly correlated to stream flow. And um, I was giving a paper about two years ago in 2014, and, uh, and just putting together the paper about flows on the Rio Grande uh, near Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, it just seemed to come together. And the more I looked at it, the more I realized, uh, and there was even some prior research uh, by some other people that have noted that the PDO seemed to be correlated to the Rio Grande in New Mexico. So I jumped on that, and I looked at it in more detail in uh, February mm -hmm. 2014, and um, I found not only is it highly correlated, there's about a year lag. So <clears throat> it was obvious to me you could actually use the PDO to forecast stream flow. And I began doing that almost immediately. And um, by working on my forecast, I grew my uh, research grew. And um, the forecasting part became the focus of my business as well. So I was developing a business forecasting stream flow even as I was conducting research and taking classes at UNM uh, to try to strengthen my understanding of these ocean drivers and solar cycles. And so as um, both have matured and they both feed on each other, you know, as a, as a provider of forecasts, I'm under a lot of, I feel, that any of, and, and this goes for anyone who's forecasting climate, not necessarily weather, but climate, is you have to be transparent. You have to put your forecast out there so people can see it and they can compare what you said uh, to what the actual climate turns out to be years later. Sure. And, um, no, go ahead. No, I just, I'm just agreeing with you. I think that that's, oh. you know, what you're, you've got to be able to line up with the reality. And uh, if your predictions or your forecasts don't line up with what's actually happened, what good are they? That's right. And so, I, I, you, know, from a you know, I'm looking at things from a business and from a researcher, and, uh, you know, they're pretty compatible. So when I think about it as, let's say you're going to see a financial advisor, you know, does it matter if this financial advisor went to Harvard or does it matter if the financial advisor has a good record of performance? And so mm -hmm. from, from a business point of view, I thought, well, I should be able to get some traction in the business because my forecasts are cheaper, faster, better, and more transparent than anyone else in the market today. So Now, I'm gonna, I, I want to stop you for a minute. I want to stop you because, you know, as a layperson here, um, I didn't understand until I talked to you that there are people who do these forecasts and there are customers for these forecasts. Can you briefly explain that for people like me who kind of don't get it? Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Well, I don't know the whole market myself, to be honest, but first of all, all of us as taxpayers are customers for all the federal forecasts. So, for example, and there's different types of forecasts, and there's uh, what I would call the uh, status quo or the conventional forecasts, which are they're very crude, and they're based on autocorrelation of streams to their own past history, or they're based on measuring snowpack and forecasting a few months ahead, uh, assuming all that snow will melt, which it always does, usually. Mm -hmm. So that's one type of forecast. And the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture, NRCS, Snowtel uh, group, they handle those types of forecasts, and they produce them every month. Then the other type of forecast is the, um, the greenhouse gas emission modeling-based forecast. Those seem to be a growing industry. So they already mm -hmm. cost uh, many, many millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. These are the forecasts that are based on the global circulation models. Those models are inaccurate. They've never been accurate. Um, there's more... But we keep story. using them. That's right. It makes no sense to me. I did write a very a, a detailed feature in What's Up With That once uh, last spring that detailed my discovery there. Uh, and I think this is ironic, but there's a category of modeling called calibration. You want to show that your model can actually reproduce the past before you forecast 60 years in the future. So these sure. models forecast 60 years in the future, and they have a lot of documentation that appears to show that they did a pretty good job of simulating the past 60 years. And that's fraudulent, honestly, because um, they replace their model results with the actual data to make it look like their model is skillful. And they don't deny it if you really, uh, you know, focus their attention on this one particular issue. Uh, what they call it, it's a euphemism, they call it reinitialization. And um, it's basically formalized fraud, in my opinion. If I, mm -hmm. if I was caught making up uh, running a model and then replacing my model results with data, I'd be fired. Or maybe I'd even go to jail. Somehow these guys all get a big pass. In any event, their forecasts, they've been making forecasts, but they don't document the uh, skill of their, their forecasts anymore. Um, but I try to. So I, occasionally I'll look at a uh, global circulation model-based forecast for stream flows in New Mexico because these guys are out there making these forecasts and charging money for them and states and uh, other organizations are paying for these greenhouse gas-based forecasts. So the few I've been able to get my hands on are very inaccurate and kind of useless. So hmm. my forecasts are so accurate, it's kind of, I can hardly believe it myself, honestly, sometimes. <laughs> Well, we, we're down to we're down to five minutes, Mike. So tell us we we uh, gotta uh, tell us about your forecast and what you what you've discovered. What this what what I wrote about this week. What's that story? Well, 
as I narrowed down my own focus and um, also expanded my reading, um, it really boils down to the sun and sunspot numbers. And when sunspot numbers go up and down, um, the, the, the radiant energy from the sun goes up and down. So the Earth receives more radiant energy. Now, climate change uh, scientists say that that's loss of the noise. But I've been looking into the noise. And uh, if you know where to look, you can see the connection very clearly. It's compelling. And I have a pretty good uh, page on my website. Uh, it's a post where I say, world's first proven multi-year drought predictions. And you could see I was using the sun and some ocean drivers that, that I particularly favor to produce forecasts three years to six years into the future. And you could see the result of my hindcast and my forecast at that uh, post. And you could see uh, it's basically highly accurate. When, the, when, um, when my forecast goes up three years later, the stream flows go up, at least in the Rio Grande. And it's also related to tropospheric uh, conditions because when the radiant energy of the sun goes up and down, the entire hydrosphere of the planet responds. And if you know where to look, again, uh, you can actually see a very strong correlation. And so I'm using those correlations to make forecasts, and they're turning out to be very accurate. So you're predicting, uh, as I recall, for the next three to four years, increased moisture. Yeah, in my, in my study area. So that's the other thing. Yeah. You know, if you're near a high mountain area, the higher the mountain is, the, the closer it is to the upper troposphere. And the, the higher it rises above the so-called planetary boundary layer. And then it gets more connected to these, uh, these uh, ocean parameters. And these ocean parameters are connected to the sun, at least in my, in my view. And so um, I am predicting the sun recently reached a, a, a minimum. Some people were talking like it was, it seems like we're uh, in the... Um, middle of a very uh, historically low solar cycle uh, series. Yeah. And, um, and you can see that in my forecast. If you look at the forecast, you can see there was a big, there was a peak in the 80s, a peak in the mid-90s, and then a peak in the late 2000s. And um, the latest solar peak was around 2013, 2014. And in any event, that's one of the lowest peaks we've seen in a long time. And you can see in my forecast accordingly, uh, we're seeing, uh, because of the lag, because it takes years for these sunspot changes to propagate down to moisture that affects areas like New Mexico. And so, yes, I think from what I see, it looks like we're, we're going to see some increase in moisture over the next three years followed by a decrease in moisture over the following three years. And um, yeah. there's some wiggle room there. It is. And I really think this is a game changer. I really, I, I understand there's a lot of hydrologists out there and climate people, and they've pretty much uh, hooked their star to the climate change thing. But I think there's plenty of work for everybody if they just walk away from all that nonsense and look at the actual data uh, everyone will be able, all the hydrologists will be able to make very useful value-added forecasts if they look at what's really driving climate. 
Yeah. We're out of time. How time flies when you're having fun. We've been talking with Mike Wallace. Uh, we're discussing the topic of my weekly column, Another Climate Alarmist Predictions Don't Match Real-World Data. I encourage you to check it out at townhall.com or at breitbart.com or American Spectator at spectator.org, and there you'll be able to find a link uh, to Mike Wallace's website and read more on this uh, fascinating topic. So, Mike, I appreciate you joining us today and sharing uh, your discoveries with us, and I hope it will cause a whole lot more people to check out your work. Thanks, and I appreciate your work too, Marita. Thanks for getting the word out. Well, I'm glad, glad to be able to help get the word out. We'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This week we're talking about climate change, but more than climate change, we're talking specifically about some of the differences between modeling and the real-world data. In our first segment, we talked with hydrologist Mike Wallace from New Mexico about his discoveries of how the sun cycles and ocean cycles are impacting stream flows, specifically in his area of study, in the southwest of the United States. And now we're going to talk with a good friend of mine who's been with us on America's Voice for Energy before, Bob Inlick, who is a retired meteorologist who served with the Air Force for a full career. And to me personally, the exciting thing about having Bob Inlick on the show besides his expertise and insight is that for a number of years, every single Tuesday morning, Bob and I were on the radio together in, in New Mexico on a show that is unfortunately no longer uh, in, uh, present, but the show was called News New Mexico. And so Bob, being on the radio with you again feels a bit like, uh, you know, old home week for me, only on News New Mexico, you were the host and I was the guest. Now I'm the host. And you're the guest. So thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks so much, Marita. It's good to uh, be on the air with you again and uh, to talk about these things, which are so important uh, to the people, because uh, it's clear that uh, your present column about uh, the Udall family and uh, and these claims of unprecedented uh, warmth and drought are just clearly not true. Yeah, so you're familiar with Mike Wallace's work, correct? 
Oh, sure. Uh, Mike and uh, you introduced Mike and me, oh, I think it was back in 2011. Uh, and uh, he's been part of uh, our group. Uh, we have a climate study group here in uh, Las Cruces uh, called the Cruces Atmospheric uh, Sciences Forum. And, uh, and some of the uh, discussion gets uh, pretty technical, uh, but it's uh, all uh, in the sense of learning. So Mike is. So what do you? What do you? Go ahead. Mike is clearly uh, one of the leaders, especially when it comes to uh, rainfall, precipitation, and drought. And he's made some discoveries that uh, shows that uh, what we have known since very late in the 20th century, and that is, it is the ocean water temperature off the American coast that controls the periods of rainfall and drought. That's an important thing to know uh, because we have uh, we have both a, maybe a three to a seven year cycle and a sixty year cycle, and uh, pretty much that uh, sixty year cycle was unknown until about 1998. So you uh, have, like, as I was saying, you you're familiar with Mike's work, and uh, you agree that he's he's onto something. Oh, absolutely, and you know. You know, I first learned about this phenomenon called El Nino over 50 years ago when I was a basic meteorology student at Texas A&M, you know, as a second lieutenant in the Air Force, and that's what they did is they sent us to school, and they mentioned this phenomenon called El Nino, and it happens uh, as a kind of a rare event in Chile uh, right on the coast, which is normally a very uh, dry area, one of the driest areas on Earth, and uh, they noticed that Every once in a while, right around uh, Christmas, that is the North American um, uh, uh, winter solstice, uh, and occasionally the water off Chile would get warm and it would rain. And so because of the association with, uh, with, uh, with Christmas, they called it El Nino, the Christ child. Uh, and, and so huh. that means. That's where, that's where it comes from. Uh, and it was, was not very well known, but now we have satellite, uh, satellite uh, uh, temperature data that, uh, that, uh, that, that help us uh, determine those temperatures. And, uh, and, and, and looking at the satellite, we see, um, we, we see the temperatures from the satellite, and we're able to determine the satellite temperature changes over time. And we can see every so often that a tongue of warm water extends from the western Pacific out by Indonesia, and it comes across the Pacific and hits the North and South American coast and spreads up and down the coast, and it is that phenomenon that causes the enhanced precipitation. And we're still seeing that. Uh, we've heard claims of drought in Texas and New Mexico, but this past year has been what we call an El Nino year, and finally the news people are starting to catch on that, that it is this El Nino phenomenon that causes this great change in temperature and the decrease in the, in the drought that sometimes normally occurs. Now, Bob, you know, I, fo I follow this climate change stuff, but you also know that I'm more the journalist, the reporter, the communicator. I'm certainly far from the scientist. 
And, but as much as I follow this, which is certainly far more than the average person out there, I'm still confused by El Nino and La Nina and which is which, and I, I'm confused by that. Can you give us a simple explanation? Well, uh, yes. It's when... I mean, you just kind of did. You gave us some of the foundation and where it came from, but which one is more water and which one is less and... Well, it, it, how does it happen? Uh, you know, that's a really good question, and really, we know that now uh, because uh, because we have a number of years of data. But when we have an El Nino event, um, we get more. It, it's warmer, and there's a lot more rainfall, especially in the western U.S. You were talking about Mike and his work in the Mountain West. Yes, um, and the opposite happens. Once that warm water is dissipated, then uh, and that warm water moving across Pacific um, uh, is, is a finite amount. And those El Ninos last for about uh, a year, sometimes two years. Rarely they will they will they will they will last uh, three years. Uh, but that's a finite amount of hot water. That hot water is put in place by what we call the trade winds. And if you've ever been to Hawaii or any other readers that have ever been to Hawaii, you know, the, the winds are almost always out of the northeast. Well, those northeast winds are, are southeast winds uh, south of the equator. But the point is the winds are out of the east, and they push that water across the Pacific Ocean. And so uh, we get a lot of warm water dammed up, and it's about 18 inches higher, sea levels about 18 inches higher out in, uh, in Indonesia, in that area. And so there's a pool of warm water. If something interrupts the trade winds, then that warm water at, at being higher, that sea level being higher, precipitates a current that comes completely across the Pacific Ocean. And just to remember that the Pacific Ocean is clearly the largest ocean in the world. And so this effect affects the entire world. Well, that warm water comes across, and essentially it, it splashes against the coast of North and South America until we have that abnormally warm water. That's El Nino. Well, once the trade winds set up again, those trade winds suck the water across the Pacific, and that water... Uh, upwells, and that's the reason it's so cold. When you go to the to the beach in California, you know, in in San Francisco, the water is so cold. People, uh, you know, it's not comfortable to bathe in that water. No, uh, it's not. Winds uh, push water across the Pacific, and cold water beneath the surface comes to the surface. Now that cold water is rich in nutrients, and that's the reason that there's there's so much fishing all up and down the Pacific Coast. But the water is uncomfortably cold, and that is the situation in, in, uh, when the trade winds are strong, and that's a La Nina. Well, when we have a La Nina, it is very common to have drought from Arizona all the way to Florida. So these are drastic changes that are naturally occurring. Some of our less educated people try to tie these natural fluctuations to man-made global warming. 
Well, it's just not true. It's a natural fluctuation, but it has a periodicity, a change in, in time, over time of, like I say, three to seven years or something like that. Now, so that's sort of the basic El Nino-La Nina. That's called okay. El Nino Southern Oscillation. But we find that everyone's that for, there's a 60-year pattern to this, and the 60-year pattern is that for about 30 years we have a lot more El Ninos, and then for about 30 more years we have a lot fewer El Ninos. So that's what we call El Nino, excuse me, PDO, that's called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. And so we have what we call PDO warm and PDO cold. Well, it turns out that we were PDO warm uh, in the last part of the 20th century. And that's the reason we're talking in your column about the, the amount of water in Lake Mead. Well, that's, you may recall in 1982, 83, 84, there was a tremendous amount of rain and snowfall in the West. And that's when the, uh, the Lake, Lake Mead, Lake Powell, they all set their all-time records. And as a matter of fact, there was so much water uh, that even... I-15, as it passes uh, Salt Lake City, Salt Lake, the Great Salt Lake, got all the way up to Interstate 15. That's a historical fact. That really happened. That was when we were in PDO warm. Now we've switched to PDO cold, and there are a lot fewer of these El Ninos, although we just had one this last two years. I hope that helps explain it. It does, and we're down to a minute and a half left, how time flies. And I still have one little question on this topic. Uh, it's fascinating. It, I understand it was announced that suddenly the El Nino has ended and we're in La Nina. Is that correct? That's absolutely true. There's a part of the Pacific that we look at with a satellite, and so that's sort of the diagnostic. And when that's above uh, about a half a degree, uh, above the average, we call, it's, we call it El Nino conditions. Well, that has precipitously fell, fallen in the last couple of months, and now it's down to zero, and it's headed on its way down. Well, that's the end of okay, that. Okay, so, so put on your meteorologist hat. we got one minute left here. And tell us, so what does this mean for global temperatures in the, in the next few years? What should we expect? We, we should expect the temperatures should fall. You know, all this cries about the record temperatures the last several years, that's because that warm water had spread across. Well, that pulse is over. That's dissipated. And, uh, and so now we can expect uh, a return to uh, La Nina, which is uh, cooler and, as I explained before, in some places drier uh, than the average. And it's, it's controlled by this very large mass of water we have on the Earth we call it Pacific Ocean. Fascinating. Yeah, you've explained it well. Uh, we've got a few seconds left. Any additional comments that you want to make? Because I've kind of had you going on the El Nino-La Nina track here, and we haven't addressed Mike's work that much. i got about 15 seconds. Anything else you want to say about that? Well, clearly it is the temperature of the ocean and next to the coasts of North and South America that controls uh, the large-scale precipitation patterns. This was unknown until relatively recently, and Mike has nailed it and used it as a guide in issuing his precipitation forecast for many communities in the Intermountain West. He's, he's doing really good work. Bob Inlick, thanks so much for joining me. It's great to talk with you again. And, you know, time, time flies when you're having fun. We'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. This is Dr. George. 
Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to our final segment of America's Voice for Energy. What a fascinating discussion we've been having today. Our first two segments were with Mike Wallace on his observations on sun cycles and ocean cycles on uh, stream flows in the southwest. We've then talked with Robert Inlick, who's a meteorologist. We talked specifically there about El Nino and La Nina, uh, and now we're going to talk with Judy Curry, who is the former chair of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Tech. She is the president of Climate Forecast Applications Network as well, and I've, of course, known about her work in the climate change world uh, probably as long as I've been involved in this topic, but most recently I became very familiar with her work through the movie Climate Hustle that I wrote a review of, and uh, Judy Curry is prominently featured in that film. So, Judy, thanks for joining us for the first time today on America's Voice for Energy. Oh, well, my pleasure. Thank you. And in the film Climate Hustle, you're introduced as, as having been um, on the side of the climate alarmists originally, and you kind of had a conversion uh, experience. Tell us about that. Well, I don't think of it as being on one side or another. Um, I would say 10 years ago I saw no particular reason to question the conclusions of the IPCC and the consensus, although I was rather concerned about what I regarded as a rather cavalier treatment of uncertainty and overconfidence in their conclusions. And it, it made sense to me, you know, the dictum, don't trust what one scientist says, trust what this whole group of a thousand international scientists have concluded after deliberating for several years and so on and so on. But I, I think the, the real change for me was at the time of Climate Gate, and this was November 2009, with the unauthorized release of emails from the University of East Anglia, which portrayed um, email conversations amongst IPCC authors. 
and I saw what a bunch of horrible sausage making went into producing this consensus. And I thought, no, we just can't accept this at face value. We have to look more carefully at what's going on here. And that was a real eye-opener for me. And the more I dug, the more I found in terms of problems with the process, um, a number of these so-called skeptics really had some legitimate points that should be paid more attention to. And I started speaking out publicly, you know, saying we needed to pay more attention to uncertainty in climate science. We needed to make everything transparent. And we also needed to, um, you know, listen to the skeptics a little bit more. And, and, you know, if we don't have good answers for them, maybe they, there's something wrong with our arguments. And as a result of speaking out in this way, I was, uh, well, to put it mildly, this was not popular with my colleagues in climate science. And then I, <laughs> I became highly criticized, and I was basically tossed over into the skeptics and the deniers camp. So you have a whole new set of friends. I'm sorry? You have a whole new set of friends. Exactly. And so I, um, you know, it was rather shocking, <laughs> but, you know, as a result of that, I've redefined my peer group, so to speak, and it's a much broader group of scientists, um, other technical people, and other individuals from many disciplines, many walks of life, and it's um, a much more interesting and illuminating group. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. What did you do? I mean, other than seeing these emails that showed that they were really consciously trying to silence a certain viewpoint, did you do some study on your own that uh, supported your kind of transformation and your viewpoints? Well, what I did is, is it really, um, yeah, I published a number of papers um, related to uncertainty, um, climate science and the uncertainty monster is probably the best known one, um, reasoning about climate uncertainty and a couple of others with more obscure titles. And basically it was looking more at the reasoning that was being used um, to draw these conclusions and pointing out, you know, some of the fallacies in their reasoning. And coming, you know, trying to come to understand how they came to these conclusions. And it's really, um, that brings us into politics and social psychology. So, um, <laughs> you, you know, my readings and writings have, you know, gone a little farther afield than pure climate science in recent years. But um, I felt that was needed to explore those issues in order to understand the, um, the dynamics of what's gone on in climate science and the politics surrounding the subject. So what are those dynamics and the politics surrounding it from your kind of inside study? Well, well, basically, I mean, this was set into play in the 1980s. Um, they were looking for dangerous human-caused climate change without understanding natural climate variability very well. And so, you know, you shine a light on it, you know, and you'll find it, you know, and all the, the money and the 
political influence and funding and academic recognition became tied up in this paradigm of dangerous human-caused climate change um, without really understanding natural climate variability. And until you understand that, you really can't sort out, you know, what the human-caused part of it might be doing. So we've, um, we've been chasing our tails for, you know, almost 30 years on this subject without really making a lot of progress, in my opinion, in terms of real, genuine understanding and any kind of a predictive capability. Now, I want to get to the natural variability and the predictive uh, information, but I, I want to almost backtrack for just a sec, uh, because, you know, you've talked about the money and the politics behind this. What's their motive, do you think? This is a question I get all the time as I'm out speaking to different groups, or, is, you know, why are they doing this? What What's the, the motive uh, behind those that are pushing what you and I see as really a pretty false narrative? Well, you know, you have to go back to the 80s. Um, the UN Environmental Program, you know, under the leadership of Maurice Strong, had an agenda for sort of more of a worldwide governance for, you know, preserving global ecosystems, and it was an anti-capitalistic view. And, and, and the environmental groups and politicians with that kind of preference latched on to climate change as a vehicle for all this. And, and then, you know, a lot of alarming stories and, you know, got people worried and scientists got caught up in this um, in terms of, you know, some there was a few individuals, mostly particularly in the U.S. and the U.K., who really pushed this uh, narrative for, you know, their personal belief system, environmentalism, their politics, whatever, combined with, you know, a relatively weakly thought-out hypothesis regarding human-caused climate change. And, you know, it chimed in with certain elements of the media and certain politicians, and it's, you know, small snowballed from, from there. And it's a very clever narrative, you know, about manufacturing a scientific consensus on this topic, which is supposed to dictate international policy. And, you know, why so many people bought into this? Um, it, it's it's almost hard to understand, but people have fallen for crazier things. But you know <laughs> that's even, true. Yeah, you know, even if we go ahead and stop burning fossil fuels, you know, on, on a drastically you know accelerated time scale, even what you know the UN is proposing, it's still going to, by the end of the 21st century, have a minuscule change. Um, on the warming, and this is even if you believe the climate models. So yeah. it's, it's one big, giant exercise in futility, and, but, but there's a lot of things at stake now. You know, there's a lot of economic development surrounding clean energy, and there's a lot of scientific reputations, and there's a lot of, you know, political power, and on and on it goes. You know, it's sort of becoming the new status, the new normal, you know, to have this mindset. And so there's a lot of, it's sort of been institutionalized at this point. 
Um, <laughs> so, but I, I, I think we're, we're quickly going to run into the reality that, you know, you know, hydropower and nuclear energy, you know, have the potential for, you know, providing the massive amounts of energy. Amount of, yeah. But, but those are, you know, politically incorrect with the environmental movement, and they're looking for solar and wind, and there is no way that solar and wind, you know, can produce anything close to what's needed. Um, so, you know, we're, we're going to see a big reality check pretty soon. Yeah. Um, you know, let let me jump in here. Let me jump in on my Ken, because we're almost out of time. Sadly, we're down to two minutes left. In my last segment with Bob Inlick, he talked about we're now into a La Nina, which will produce uh, cooler temperatures. First, A, do you agree with that? But more importantly, do you see that that's part of what maybe is going to have the warming crowd, um, you know, hitting a brick wall? Uh, yeah, it looks like we're headed towards a, a La Nina, and we're overall in a situation in the Pacific where La Nina is going to be more the rule than El Nino's are, you know, the, the recent extreme event notwithstanding. But, you know, that there's a lot of interannual variability, and I think the bigger issue is the multi-decadal variability, the big ocean oscillations in the Pacific and Atlantic that are you know, operating on, you know, time scales of 30, 50, 70 years, and, and that's a more interesting time scale for climate change. I think the noise of El Nino and La Nina is pretty much just that. You know, I, I don't think that the hype of the warmest year or not the warmest year is, is something for, you know, that the media gets all hyped up but it's not all that meaningful from any kind of a scientific perspective. But as we head into cooler temperatures, that's going to kind of um, uh, call their bluff, I think. Yeah, uh, because the early part of 2016 was so warm, there's still the potential for 2016, even if we hit La Nina later in the year, it still could be a warmest year. But I think um, we will see the dip more in 2017, 2018. But, you know, we'll just have to see how it plays out. Yeah, na nature is unpredictable like that. We're out of time. We've been talking with Judy Curry, former chief of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Tech and the president of Climate Forecast Applications Network. We're out of time for this week's America's Voice for Energy. Please tune in again next week. Thanks for listening on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.